please be seated. If you are uh, a middle school age or, or an elementary age school kiddo, go ahead and head out these doors. Am I on yet? No? Um, hello, we're trying to get the mic working. There it goes. Until then, I, I can yell, I guess, if we need to. So, well, good. Good morning, everyone. And uh, how's everybody doing today? Hanging in there? Um, I promised myself I wouldn't mention that uh, me and Trev's Red Raiders were in the final four for the first time in school history, but Reckham Tech, I couldn't help it. So it's uh, fun times for all you uh, OU fans out there. Not all schools get to be as awesome as you guys are most of the time. So we're, uh, we're, uh, we're pretty excited about it. So um, anyway, thanks for shooting us texts and stuff. It was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, you know, obviously it's in light of the gospel is rather meaningless, but it's a lot of fun to, uh, to do on, on a Saturday afternoon. So um, as Trev mentioned, we are going to be finishing the book of John. We're not going to leave the book of John quite yet, but we're going to finish our exposition of the book today. So that's big time. That's a big thing for us. There's a lot of verses. I don't know. You can probably Google it and see how many verses, but we've been through all of them. And today we are going to finish reading through and studying through the book together. And then Treb's going to take the next two weeks and, and, and look at some, uh, some things that we need to remember and learn and take and, and then do from the book of John. So it is an extraordinary, extraordinary book. And uh, granted, all the books of the Bible are inspired. Uh, John is just, it is an extraordinary book. The more you read it, the more beautiful it becomes, the more complex, the more that it's it's amazing. And so it's a, it's a joy to finish it. It's been a very long journey. And uh, Thanks for sticking with it. So we are, uh, if you ever get bored, you can go back and listen to all the 80 or 90 sermons and uh, it will take you a while. But we will finish the book of John today. And we, last week, we were, actually two weeks ago, we were in chapter, uh, we were in chapter 21 and then we took a bit of a, of a detour because Treb was sick and he's still sick. So pray for him, his voice is, and he can't stop coughing. So please pray the Lord to heal him. So we need him to be able to talk, to do his job. So the book really finishes at the end of chapter 20, and chapter 21 is this beautiful epilogue where Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he is, uh, remember they go out on the boat, and they're fishing something they were, these seven guys were really good at, and they were failing miserably, and Jesus comes and he tells them what to do, and this idea comes out of this failure of the disciples that in order for us to successfully do what God wants us to do, we're going to have to listen to Jesus and do what he says, Okay? And that's most of the Christian life, is listen to Jesus and do what he says. 21, though, finishes with this beautiful restoration or reinstatement of the apostle Peter, who had failed Jesus more spectacularly than any other apostle, minus Judas. So Judas is a little bit of a different story. But Peter had utterly failed Jesus, utterly failed him, literally denied him three times, denied Jesus to his face because he was scared. And so Jesus will very graciously and marvelously restore him and put him back to work. So before we jump into that text, let's pray, and then we will finish our exposition of the book of John. Lord, we love you. Um, gosh, I just love reading the Gospels because I get to see you working, get to see you talking and restoring and you you show us who God is, and you are God, and we are grateful for this book of John. How many people have come to faith in you, Lord Jesus, reading the words in this book? Just give you praise for 
your servant who wrote it. And thank you that we have it. Thank you that you revealed ourself, yourself to us in your word. We ask for our time today that you would help us to learn what you want to teach us. Help us to be convicted where we need to be convicted, rebuked where we need to be rebuked, edified where we need to be built up. Lord, we come to you, we come to your word today and we bow before you. You are our God and our King. We are not. And so we come to you and ask for your help in understanding your word and in applying the word of God to our life, that we would walk in the newness of life that you have won for us. Just as that song we just sang said that in your name is victory. In your name, Jesus, is victory. Victory from sin, victory from self, and freedom to walk in newness of life and actually live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. What a wonderful, wonderful reality. But we need your help, Lord Jesus. We cannot do it unless you help us. Would your spirit guide us today and teach us what you want us to know. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, O Lord, be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. And may you be glorified by what we walk through in this sermon today. Help us understand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in chapter uh, 21 and verse 15 of the book of John. And it says, when they had finished eating, so they've come back and they've had breakfast that Jesus made. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die, but Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that this testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Wow. Okay. So what's going on here? So obviously there's some questions in here, and you may have footnotes in your Bible that we'll, we'll get into some of the language things in here. But they've come up, and, and Jesus has made breakfast for these guys. So it's these seven disciples there, including Peter. And it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. And when he addresses him like that, like when he's like, Simon, son of John, who do you say that I am? He's going to ask him a big question, right? And he says, do you truly love me more than me? So it's a wee bit awkward because I think most kind of commentators agree that they're probably all sitting around this fire eating breakfast and they just finished. And just like after the Last Supper and many times after a meal, Jesus is explaining, the, teaching the disciples after a miraculous uh, sign, 
And he says, do you love me more than these? Which is not a generally question you ask around a group of people, right? Say, I mean, they're sitting there and Jesus is like, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these other six disciples sitting here? Whoa. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So the word for love that Jesus uses is, is, is agape and, and, and related to this word that is this selfless love, the, this idea of, of the love that God has for us, this perfect love, this, this sacrificial love. And Peter answers with, a, uh, with what is really a, a, a synonym of, of love. And he says, you know that, that I love you. He uses the word phileo, which we get the word Philadelphia from, this brotherly love. It's a very affectionate love, a love of a feeling, uh, uh, a love that I have for, for my brother or for my sister. It's this deeply affectionate love. Agape doesn't really have anything to do with feelings. It has to do with sacri- sacrificing yourself for another person. And so then Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Feed meaning to nourish, to give food to my lambs, this diminutive idea of sheep, right? Little lambs. And Jesus says again in verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He uses the word agape there again. And Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I I love you. I have this affectionate love towards you. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep or shepherd my sheep. That word really meaning not just to feed, but kind of the all-encompassing thing that a shepherd does, which is he protects, he, he, he corrects, he leads, he guides, he feeds, he does all of these things for the sheep. The sheep, by the way, meaning believers. That's what he's referring to. Jesus was, I mean, he's a, he's a metaphorical shepherd. He's a, we didn't actually have, there's not, you guys aren't, anyway, nobody is growing wool. All that to say, if you're wondering what that is, he's not talking about actual sheep, it's, it's people. So, the third time, he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Jesus there uses the word phileo. He matches what Peter was saying. And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time. So I don't think Peter was hurt because, maybe he's hurt because Jesus is saying, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, I phileo you. And he says, do you agape me? And he returns back. And, and Peter was hurt, though, there in verse 17, not because he had changed the name of the word to match his, but because he asked him the third time, do you love me? So think about this. They're sitting around a charcoal fire and Peter got asked three questions. You remember the last night it happened to him? Jesus has been arrested. This is, I don't know, back in the summer, I don't know when it was when we actually preached on it, but Jesus has been arrested and he is on trial. And Peter is there right outside the court. Uh, the court. Jesus can see him because in in, uh, in one of the Gospels, when he denies Jesus, Jesus turns and looks right at him. And so this girl there asks Peter, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? And he's sitting there warming himself around this fire, and he says, I, no, no, I don't, you don't know what you're talking about. And she asks him again, and she's like, no, I, I think you're one of the disciples. And he goes, no, I don't, I don't know the man. And then she's like, no, no, you're, you're a Galilean. I can hear by your accent. You're, you're one of Jesus' guys. And Peter says, I don't know Jesus. And right at that moment, this rooster crows, and Jesus turns and looks at Peter, and Peter runs and weeps bitterly. So Peter had denied Jesus to his face. He had said, I don't know you. I disown you. I push myself away from you. Because I, I, Peter was thinking, if I say, yeah, I'm one of Jesus' followers, I am dead. Those guys right there, they're going to come and get me. They're going to do the same thing to me. They're going to flog me and crucify me, and it'll be done. Do you think Jesus is doing this on accident, asking him three times? He asks him this question, do you 
love me. And Peter answers him and says, look at this answer at the, at the end of uh, verse 17. He says, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. What an incredible thing. Peter, I don't think there's any arrogance left in Peter right now. I think that's all drained out. Uh, falling greatly in sin will cause us to be humble. Well, it can if we allow it to. Peter falls back on Jesus' omniscience. You know all things. He's already told him, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. And then he says, listen, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. Can you imagine Peter? They're finally getting like the Jesus is God. It's forming. They know that he's the Messiah. They know that he's raised from the dead. But the reality that Jesus is God incarnate. The man, the resurrected man sitting in front of Peter knows everything. Isn't that amazing? You know all things and you know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. And he says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. He's basically saying, listen, before I came along, you kind of did what you wanted. You got up, you got dressed, you went to work, you did your life. When you're old, someone's going to stretch out your hands and lead you where you do not want to go. Now, John explains here in verse 19 that Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. A couple things from that. One, when John is writing this, Peter has already died. So he died by, by most, most people think uh, Peter was crucified in Rome in about AD 67. So about 30 years after Jesus says this. 30 years. Imagine someone told you 30 years ago, I know how you're going to die. <laughs> That's pretty heavy. To indicate what kind of death by which Peter would do what? Glorify God. So Jesus has come to Peter and he said, he's questioned his love for him. And yet at, the, at every point in this questioning, he gives him work to do. Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. And then he says to Peter, guess what? You're going to die. Follow me. It's amazing. So Jesus then, I think at this point, maybe Peter and Jesus are walking. And it's almost like Peter, you know, at the end of um, the Chronicles of Narnia, the movie, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, how they're having this big celebration and Aslan the Lion is walking on the beach. You know, have you seen that movie? And uh, then he just kind of disappears. And I kind of get this image of Jesus. I know that Aslan's supposed to be, the, anyway, so I probably overabuse that, but it's, it's in there on purpose and it's so good. But it's like Jesus just shows up on the beach and he's just, he's taken off. He, he's taught these disciples and he's moving. And apparently Peter and Jesus are now walking away from at least some of the other disciples and this other disciple whom Jesus loved is close enough to where he can hear what Jesus and Peter are talking about. So in verse 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, the guy writing the book, was following them. And then John goes to want to explain this. The same guy leaned back on Jesus at the Last Supper and said, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said, well, Lord, what about him? 
<laughs> which is super classic, just human, right? Um, Jesus is going, he's dr- telling Peter these enormous things of enormous gravity, right? Enormous gravity. He's restoring him, questioning his love for him, giving him work to do, mandating his, what, what death, by, what, by what death he will glorify the Lord. And then Peter's like, well, what about John? And Jesus says, you know what? If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. It's this amazing kind of rebuke. And it's not kind of, it's absolutely a rebuke. And Jesus is just saying, listen, John explains it right there. Because of this, this rumor spread among the brothers. This idea of you get the early church and John apparently lived longer than any of the other disciples. And so this rumor spread that this disciple wouldn't die, but Jesus never said that. He just said, hey, well, if I want John to stay alive until I get back, what is that to you? You follow me. So he dispels this rumor that had been going around, which is just another, one of these other indications of just the, the authenticity of the text, right? These are, there are real rumors, real rumors going on about John. He's writing in real time about real people. Verse 24 said, this is the disciple who testifies to these things, which he said before, but he's saying, listen, the guy who's writing this is who's saying these things happened and who wrote them down. It's John. And then he says, we know that this testimony is true. John knows that he's not the only witness. The other disciples, the apostles, they were witnesses. They all know that these things are true. And he affirms that truth over and over again in this book of John. And then he goes and he uses this beautiful hyperbolic language, right? Where he says, listen, if he did many other things as well, isn't, there's a loaded statement, right? I mean, we have all kinds of questions, right? Like you've got, what kind of tables did Jesus make? I mean, is, is there a stool that Jesus made? Some, you know, what? He did all these things as well. And Jesus probably washed dishes. I mean, all these questions you have about things that Jesus did. And he says, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is not about a, a calculus of how, many, how much space there is on planet Earth to hold books, right? It's about the, the magnitude of Jesus' life. That if someone took everything that Jesus did and wrote them down, think about just the commentaries that Christians have written just on the book of John. Fill this room. The idea being that Jesus did so many things that aren't even written in this book, but everything we need to know that God wanted John to write is in John. He didn't leave anything out that needed to be in there. So what do we do with this story? Well, one of the things is that Jesus is constantly in the process of restoring broken people to himself. He is constantly in the process. If you are a person today who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, he is in the process of restoring you to himself right now. He is calling you to him, calling you to hear the gospel, that he loves you, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the grave, and that by confessing faith in Jesus Christ, you will have life in his name. He is in the process right now of restoring you to himself as a broken person. If you are a believer today and you are walking with Jesus or not walking with Jesus, he is in the process of restoring you to himself. Peter was a believer, very much a believer. He was passionate. He was fervent. He was um, all of these qualities that I both love and don't like, uh, Peter has. 
And yet he had failed utterly. He had literally disowned the savior of the world to save his own hide. Did Jesus leave him there? Did Jesus just fly into heaven and be like, Peter, you know what? You screwed up big time, buddy. This is you're on your own. I'll see you later. I'll send the Holy Spirit. Bye. Wait for me. He takes this moment and he, he gives Peter a chance to be restored. See, he had publicly denied Jesus three times. And so then Jesus comes up and questions him three times so that he can publicly confess the Lord that he denied. And he does it in front of the other disciples. He restores Peter. Restores him. And brothers and sisters, he will restore you too. I said it, I say it all the time. If God can use me, he can use any fool. He can use any fool who will let him. God is capable of using any person. The issue is not what God can do. The issue is what you can't do, which is everything that of any value, and what God is able to do through a person who will humble themselves before him. That's what we talked about last week. Peter is now at the point where he can really be used by the Lord. He has utterly failed, and Jesus has restored him to himself. What is the question that Jesus asks? Does he ask, are you sorry? Does he ask, do you repent? Does he ask, have you learned anything? Does he ask, what does he ask? Do you love me? And when he gets down to the question here that Peter says, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. I feel like what Peter is saying is, Lord, you agape me. You love me with a selfless, sacrificial, perfect love. I phileo you. I have this deep, affectionate love for you. But Lord, you know that I love you, but I don't love you like you love me. That may be the greatest place for a Christian to ever get to. Where you come and you say, Lord, you love me. I know that. You know that I love you, but I don't love you like you love me. And I can't. But I love you. That's a good place to be. Because Jesus is constantly in the process of restoring broken people to himself. But you, you got to sit around the fire with him. If Peter is still sitting on the boat, this doesn't happen. If Peter sees Jesus and walks off because he's ashamed, this doesn't happen. If Peter lets the guilt of his sin wear him down and he won't listen to Jesus or he won't answer Jesus or he gets defensive when Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And Peter's like, how dare you ask me a question? Which rolls into my second point is that Jesus has the right to question us. He has the right to question Peter and say, Peter, do you really love me? He asked him that three times. He has the right to say, Brandon, do you really love me? He has the right to say, husband, do you love your wife as Christ loves the church? He has the right to say, wife, are you submitting to your husband as to the Lord? He has the right to say, Father, are you behaving in a way that is exasperating your children? He has the right to say, Christian, are you loving your neighbor? He has the right to ask us the question. He does. And we do not have the right to tell him, how dare you ask me that question? Because the pot cannot say to the potter, why did you make me? Because he is God and we are not. Fundamental theology. God is God and I'm not. It all starts there. Because as soon as I think I'm God, 
Well, good luck with that one. Doesn't work out really well. God does not um, give his glory to someone else. And when we say that, I know that our human response is to think, well, what kind of God is that? Well, he's the kind of God who gives his glory to no one else. And you can either look at him and be moved by his great love for you, or you can get arrogant and push back on him. <clears throat> Don't do that. Receive Jesus' right to ask you questions. What does that look like practically? Well, when you read the scripture, God is talking to you, okay? It's really not that complicated. I don't want to talk about voices you hear or dreams or whatever. That's a whole other topic. When you read the Bible, and it says, oh, I'm just going to flip to a page in the epistle somewhere. Here, Philippians. Um, here's Philippians uh, 2. If you have any encouragement, if any tenderheartedness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Are we one in spirit and purpose? Jesus has the right to ask us that question. And our response is what will make all the difference. Jesus' response, or uh, Peter's response, excuse me, was, I love you, Lord, but I don't love you like you love me. Your love is better than mine. And our response to God's questions to us in the Bible are, it needs to be humble. But he has the right to question us. Look what Jesus says next to Peter, right? He tells him, feed his sheep. And then he says in verse 18, listen, um, following me means that you're going to die. And for 30 years, Peter carried that reality with him, okay? Following Jesus meant he was going to be crucified. Um, early church legend, uh, not legend, early church uh, history has, um, has Peter being crucified upside down because he, I don't know how much proof there is of that, but that he didn't want to be crucified like his Lord, so he requested to be crucified upside down. But there's not a whole lot of evidence against the fact that Peter was indeed crucified because he followed Jesus. Because following Jesus is never at any point in any way, shape, or form about our comfort. Never, never, never. I, um, there's a, I, I teach this course uh, to uh, churches, like there's a church on the south side where it's an, it's an older church, and uh, not the people in it, but it's been there for a while. There's also some older people in it, but the church has been there for 50 years or so. And so, and it's now in a, an entirely 95% Hispanic community, and they're trying to figure out how, to, how do we as a predominantly white church love our community well. So um, when that first process started with that church, uh, the pastor who was there, um, the church is about 600 members, and uh, is now down to about 150. And it started with a question that the pastor asked a guy there, and he said, hey, man, how do, you, how do you think we can love the community they were actually in? And the guy's response to him was, if we do that, won't that put our children at risk? That's a hard question, right? Because the answer is yes. Yes, it will. It will put our children at risk to love a community that doesn't look like us. To love a community that has crime and sin and brokenness. Am I telling someone that they should uh, sacrifice their children to? No, of course not, and God isn't either. 
Did Peter have children? Did he have grandchildren? Were they crucified because they followed Jesus? Would Peter say it was worth it? I think that he would. Following Jesus is not about our comfort. It can't be. Do you know why? Because God does not share his glory. It's not about how I feel or how you feel. It's about what God desires because what he desires is best. It's a very, very hard thing to wrestle with that following Jesus is never about my comfort. Self-control, right? A fruit of the Holy Spirit is not about my comfort. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Is comfort a fruit of the Spirit? No, because comfort is all about me. What do I need? What do I want? What's best for me? And my, most of my breaths are breathed in and breathed out thinking about what's best for Brandon. Oh, man, I wish that, I hope maybe as, the, as I grow older that those breaths start to go, maybe more of those breaths are spent thinking about other people. That's sanctification. It's the song we talked about, right? Our song that we sang, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. That's part of that process is him killing off our need for comfort. I don't mean that you sleep in a good bed or that you drive a comfortable car, whatever. I mean, those aren't, I don't think God really, maybe he does. Whether or not you drive a, a Lexus or a Toyota, a wee bit irrelevant in light of the facts of the kingdom, right? If you drive a really nice car, to get martyred, fine, okay? But that's not what most of us are talking about, right? Most, not just American Christianity, by the way. I, I only know American and Guatemalan and Latin American Christianity. I don't know the rest of the world. But people are people. Churches struggle with the same stuff, whether they're in Africa or in the Philippines or in Guatemala or here, <laughs> Churches here, uh, Spanish-speaking churches here in Oklahoma City are so concerned with their comfort that they don't want to speak English to the second and third generations who only speak English because they're like, um, we only speak Spanish. So we're not doing anything different because they're concerned with their comfort. But following Jesus is never about our comfort. We put it on a sign out there, right? Love God, love people, follow Jesus, be comfortable. That's on the bottom of the sign. It got cut off when we printed it. We didn't put it on there because it's not the point. When David is writing in Psalm 139, he's writing about this. This is a beautiful picture of just God's sovereign hand in his entire life from the time that he was woven together in his mother's womb. It's beautiful, beautiful poetry. Beautiful poetry. But he ends Psalm 139 with this. In verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. No part of that is comfortable. To say, it's not that God doesn't know our heart, but I need to know what God knows about my heart. I need him to tell me what he can see in me that I can't see. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Try me. Put me through the fire. Put me in situations where my anxiety will be revealed, Lord. What a crazy thing to pray. Then he says, see if there be any offensive or hurtful way in me. Is anything that I'm doing hurtful or offensive, Lord? 
And then what? Lead me in the everlasting way. No part of that is comfortable. No part. And yet that is what we must do, is press into the Lord Jesus, who literally, in Peter's case, led him to die on a cross and glorify God by his death. Then, of course, Peter turns around and sees John. Um, following Jesus is about focusing on Jesus. Don't, don't waste your time on uh, looking back. Don't waste your time looking at other people. If you're looking at other people thinking how you can encourage them, that's, that's not what Peter's doing. Peter's not looking back and thinking, man, I think John's had a hard day. I wonder, let's go pray for him, Jesus. That's not what he says. He's like, you just told me that following you means I'm going to die on a cross. What about John? And Jesus is like, excuse me? You don't get to ask me the questions. You follow me. Follow me, and it's going to lead to your death in 30 years. Now, Peter doesn't know all this, but Jesus does. It's going to lead to your horrible, painful martyrdom out of your love for me. Do you think that when Peter was being nailed to the cross and he was thinking about his theology, or was he just crying out, Lord, I love you. I agape you now, Lord. I don't think he was saying, I phileo you, Lord, when he was being murdered for his love for Jesus. But it took 30 years to get Peter there. Following Jesus means focusing on Jesus. Don't get distracted. Oh my goodness. I'm like that dog chasing after the squirrel. Every shiny thing that goes by distracts me. Every other person, it's a constant battle. I just implore you and me and all of us, focus on the Lord Jesus. Don't get caught up on what other people are doing. That's how gossip gets started as you look at someone else and say, hey, what the, are they doing? Just, I tell my kids, I don't know, every 50 times a day, listen, just you, you take care of you. That's what we tell them. I say, would you please go pick up your socks on the floor in your bedroom? Well, what about, but, listen, but you, just, you just take care of you. And you got enough to deal with just managing you. Don't worry about managing them. And it's the same in the body of Christ. Listen, you, you take care of you so that you can take care of other people, right? The God of all comfort comforts us in our, comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort those that are in their affliction. Don't get distracted. And finally, um, Jesus has work for us to do in this world. It is not, Jesus does never, he, he never restores a person simply so that they can then be comfortable and restored. Why does he restore Peter? He's already told Peter, you're going to be a fisher of men, right? That's evangelism for the most part. Pulling the lost out of the world with the gospel. Now, I guess the fish turned into sheep. Anyway, there's some mixed metaphors in there. But he, now he says feed, because you don't shepherd sheep, uh, fish, but sheep are a good picture. When, you, when they become believers, I want you to feed them. Teach them the word. I want you to shepherd them. I want you to protect. I want you to correct. He had work to do. He was, Peter was a pastor of the church. He was an elder. He was the, and all these guys that are, they're listening, they're reading, they, John knows this. That's what they did. John's job was not Peter's job. John's job was to testify, and he wrote John. Peter didn't write John. Peter wrote 1st, 2nd Peter. Which is another book. John wrote this book. He's testifying about what Jesus did. But John, Peter, excuse me, Jesus, a lot of names in there. Jesus had work for Peter to do, and he has work for you too. The church is not Treb and I doing stuff. 
Yes, we do stuff. The church is us doing stuff together. That's the church. The idea of that we sit up here and, and you for, for an hour come on a Sunday and, and that's it. That didn't work in real well, folks. There's too much brokenness just in this town, much less in this state, in this country, in this world, for us to just sit around and worry about us. You have work to do. Have you been restored by Jesus? Then you have work to do. Is he going to just let you be? Is he going to just forget about that he's commissioned us to do work? No. He's going to constantly restore us as we fail. Say, remember what I've told you to do. Preach Christ and make disciples everywhere. In your job, in your home, in your neighborhood. Preach Christ and make disciples. Talk to that guy. Preach Christ and make disciples. Well, I don't, I'm not a preacher. I didn't say you'd be a preacher. I said preach Christ and make disciples. I didn't say, I don't. Every single Christian is gifted with the capacity to preach Christ to someone and to make disciples. Every believer. That's what this church is supposed to do. Man, what a book. Um, I don't know what book we're going to do next. We don't know yet. We'll f figure it out by the time we have to preach that book. <laughs> um, hopefully before that Sunday. And, uh, but I, I can't wait to see in the next two weeks what, what Treb's going to go over about the, the things that we can draw out of this marvelous, marvelous, beautiful book. John did not write it because he was bored. He wrote it because he wanted us the Spirit inspired him to write it because the Spirit wanted us to read what it says and then do it. So in your life, I want you to take Jesus' questions on. Don't run away from them. They are hard questions. And I want you to receive his restoration. Okay, allow him to restore you. And then I want us to walk in the work that he has for us to do Let's pray. Lord, you are just so good to love us, to question us, to shepherd us. What a marvelous thing that we get to be loved by Jesus. You love, <laughs> you love sinners, Lord. And that's what every one of us is. We do not walk in perfection, Lord. We, like Peter, get scared. We make foolish decisions. We make flat-out sinful decisions sometimes. And yet you are a God who is constantly at work restoring us to yourself. Lord, as we sing this song to worship you and respond to you in worship, I pray that there is any heart in here who is far from the Lord, that you are calling them, restoring them. If they are not a believer, if you are bringing them to faith in you, if they are a believer and far away, if you are restoring them, if they are walking with you and you are encouraging them in the work you have for them, Lord Jesus, help us come to you, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and take your yoke upon us. Help us learn from you.
for you're gentle and humble in spirit. You give us grace when we need it, Lord. Help us receive it, to be transformed by it, and empowered by you to do the work you have for us to do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.